Hello and welcome to the Goal 4 podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. The World Bank Group is the largest funder of education in the developing world. It works in 90 different countries and is committed to helping them on the path to sustainable development goal 4. That is, if you haven't been paying attention, access to inclusive and equitable quality education and lifelong learning opportunities for all by 2030. But what exactly is it that the bank does? And what is their approach to inclusive education issues? Beaming in from Washington DC is Hannah Alusatari, the global thematic lead of inclusive education and senior education specialist in the education global practice of the World Bank. Hannah holds a PhD in education from the University of Ulu, Finland, and has worked in the field of education sector partnerships and educational research in Europe, Africa, Middle East, and North America. Hannah Alasatari, welcome to Go4. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. I wanted to ask, first of all, what is the role of the World Bank regarding education on a global level? I think World Bank is one of the big actors um, in education and development. It's quite a big organization and we are present in quite a few countries in different parts of the the globe. Um, Particularly, we work with the countries in Latin America and Caribbean, in African continent, in Europe and Central Asia, um, East Asia and Pacific, South Asia, North Africa and Middle East. And hopefully I remembered all the regions that we work in. So it's quite a quite a, a broad uh, presence. And, um, and I think World Bank is perhaps one of those organizations that um, when thinking of uh, looking at the education agenda in the countries that partner countries that uh, the World Bank works with, um, it, it has uh, what we what we call convening power. Um, as it's not only education, but all the other sectors that we work with um, and also, um, you know, uh, with different stakeholders and partners um, in the countries, it's, uh, it's good to be involved with that dialogue that goes, um, goes on in the country among the different stakeholders with the, with the leading role of the government, of course. So I think um, it's, it's one of those organizations that it's, uh, it's good to acknowledge uh, within the area of uh, education and development. And that's a really, that's a truly a global remit by the sounds of it. Uh, you're, you're involved specifically in the education global practice of the World Bank. Could you tell me a little bit about this and how inclusive education is embedded within that? Thanks, Richard. Yes, happy to. Um, so education global practice um, is the one that really looks after the education agenda of the World Bank. I'm personally based in Washington, D.C., in the headquarters of the World Bank and in the global unit of education global practice. We have colleagues in all these regions that I mentioned in the beginning, and there are regional units that work under the, the regional management there. My role in the global unit as a senior education specialist and global lead for inclusive education is, is to look after the development of inclusive education agenda, uh, analytical research work, as well as guidance, um, really working with those kind of um, global goods that can be used by the country teams. So none of the work that I do makes sense if they don't really um, have anything to do with what are the needs of the country. So that's very much the perspective that um, I try to work uh, uh, from. 
And um, I think the World Bank now is, is in a very interesting situation because um, there is um, an architecture of um, supporting um, inclusive education. And, and there is actually framework that we have to follow in, in some of our lending operations. It's called environmental and social framework. And there is the, the part of uh, non-discrimination there. So this framework, along with other documentation, is really helpful for us to, to remind everybody that um, inclusive education is really there. And we should consider all marginalized groups that are there in the country level when we plan anything in, in education. And um, we have recently been focusing a lot on learners with disabilities, um, especially within this thematic area. We have the environmental and social framework. The environmental and social framework um, of the World Bank is really the document that uh, helps us in taking the inclusive education agenda forward. So especially um, related to some lending operations, it is binding for our staff and also um, influences these um, negotiations of this particular um, lending instrument. So, and we have, we have worked um, more within the area of disability inclusion in recent years. Um, and the environmental and social framework has, um, as uh, documentation that is looking at disability inclusion in particular. Then we also have disability inclusion and accountability framework document, which has been developed by uh, Charlotte McLean and Lapo, who is the global disability advisor working uh, with the social sustainability and inclusion global practice. And then we have um, particular guidance for disability inclusion in education. We came up with um, criteria, which has four different areas, um, stakeholder engagement, analysis, um, inclusive design, and monitoring and reporting. So all of our teams uh, preparing for investment project financing that are active 2025 and beyond have to make sure that they comply with all these four criteria. We developed that guidance um, as a very participatory approach. So our colleagues working in operations were able to review it and also provide comments. My colleague, Sean Powers, with whom we co-authored this guidance, um, has very long experience on operations in the World Bank. I've been here, um, I've been working in the World Bank a little bit more than six years now and also involved in operations. But it's so important to have um, different kind of approach thinking of our, our staff so that we would have, um, we would in a way consider colleagues who, who have a background in, in economics, also some of the colleagues would have background in social uh, or public policy, um, and some are like me with education background. So making sure that we have a comprehensive guidance that also makes sure, uh, make, make, make sense um, with country operations has been essential. So. All of these together um, now um, have, have really made a change, um, uh, I think, within the thinking that we have um, in the World Bank. Um, I think the process is still ongoing. Um, it's important to make sure that we have um, the kind of common understanding of what is it that we, we understand by inclusive education and, and what actually the countries um, decide to do. So one of the first things that... Um, 
the teams working with the countries um, should really be in finding out what's the legal framework, what are the policy, what is the policy environment like? And if there is nothing in those areas, maybe those are some of the areas that dialogue can begin from. If these are already in place, maybe there are other areas that they can think they can work with. Yeah, the um that common understanding of inclusion is so important, isn't it? Between every stakeholder, between everyone in the education system. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the, uh, I'm interested in some specific initiatives that have come out of that, such as the Inclusive Education Initiative. There's also the Global Disability Summit. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about those initiatives? Sure. I think Inclusive Education Initiative is one of those um, initiatives that have really helped our teams to move forward in making inclusive education a reality in the countries that um, Inclusive Education Initiative has been able to support concrete country operations or research or analytical work. So there are magnificent um, results coming out from there. We have really useful global reports, global public goods that have been um, published or are in the process of being published. Um, there is work related to multi-sectoral collaboration and also looking at inclusive assessment. Um, there is also particular work that some of the organizations of uh, persons with disabilities have been able to, to be involved with some of the global actors in there. So I think with Inclusive Education Initiative, there is a really good um, example of how twin track approach in um, inclusive education really pays off. And what I, what I mean by twin tra track approach with this one, that at the same time, when we have a very focused um, funding opportunity for disability inclusion, we also need to work with the mainstream approaches, I'm going to say. So linking um, the work of inclusive education initiative that I've also been part of. Um, the trust fund has been managed by um, Charlotte McLean Lapo, who is our global disability advisor. And some of the grants have been going directly to the country teams. And then some of them also um, have been um, supporting the, the work in the global um, units of, of the two global practices, education and social sustainability and inclusion. And for us in the education, the mainstreaming uh, perspective is really important. So there are colleagues who have um, similar roles to mine, global thematic lead or global lead roles for early years, for teachers, for curriculum and assessment, um, also for higher education and skills, um, as well as inclusive, um, sorry, education technology, as well as um, uh, education finance. I was almost going to say inclusive education technology, and I am happy to actually say that we've studied a lot of work in that area. So, you know, my um, aim with the work that I do here in the education global practice is really hoping that one day the inclusive education thematic group no longer exists, but this theme is actually picked up by everybody else. Um, I think that's a way, you know, um, also to, to look at different education system development. Sometimes, you know, um, it is important that the specific unit is still there. And, and most of the, of the cases, it is the case. Um, 
However, that team is it in the Ministry of Education or is it in the World Bank? Um, colleagues working with uh, inclusive education, particularly looking at certain marginalized groups, should be part of the overall conversations. We we should have a Minister of Finance who is actually interested in that work in the Ministry of Education, and again, you know, those who are responsible for planning of um, overall planning, for example. Those who are responsible for curriculum development should have that. But I, I think it's important to, to maintain this kind of twin track approach. When it comes to um, operations in the World Bank, I think we often also have a situation that the country teams um, have a lot of resources to support the work they do. In that case, sometimes additional technical, uh, you know, um, technical advice or expertise coming from a professional from you know um, with inclusive education background can be really helpful so i think you know we have seen results um, when this is also taken into account so it's in a way multifaceted approach i, I would say that um, seems to seems to pay off yeah and i want to come on to some of the the results and successes in a moment but just going back to that twin track approach is it sometimes a bit of a balancing act between focusing just on, I mean, to use the phrase you use, disability inclusive education and inclusive education in a more broader sense. I suppose that I suppose the issue there is focusing on one particular group, as you say, the most marginalized groups, such as learners with disabilities, because that group needs the most support, for example. But by doing so, are you running the risk of just helping a particular group or running the risk even of making that whole system less inclusive? in itself and just focusing on that one area. Very true. And those are really important things to, to think about and, and actually pause and um, consider the country that one is working in, right? I had a colleague reminding me um, recently that in a country that she works, um, there are so many marginal, marginalized groups. And even there was a kind of a, an approach that, um, you know, was in a way considered that how can we actually make sure that we take into account each and everyone and yet each and every, every marginalized group needs some specific attention. You know, we have a lot of refugees, uh, displaced people, um, again, you know, older or, or, or newer marginalized groups in every single country that we can think of. Um, so I think it's it's really important um, to make sure that World Bank country teams are able to engage in that discussion with the government. The, the bank always works with the government. And really, you know, open avenues for that to consider. Let's say Europe and Central Asia, Roma population is one of those quite big uh, marginalized groups that seems to, to have an issue in, in many of the countries that we work with. So the countries in ECA can also learn from each other uh, from, from this approach. But it's, um, you know, so, so somehow giving a Roma example, I could also give um, example of indigenous people. Um, I could give example of, of other marginalized groups. When I'm thinking of, of building the narrative for the global guidance um, that would support the teams working in the country context, I think two of the teams that we recently work more with um, are kind of themes that it's possible to, to provide some global guidance and make sure that 
World Bank staff is aware of, you know, what are those um, conventions and agreements and globally as well as within the bank. Um, disability inclusion as well as SOGI inclusion, so sexual orientation and gender identity, have been the themes that we've recently worked more with because those seem to be really the themes that you can consider some of the global guidance, uh, right? Some of the principles that because of, of uh, the international um, publications and, um, and conventions and, and other documents are there. And if the country has ratified them, they, they actually have a way to go, right? So I think for, for the variety of marginalized groups, many of, um, many of the marginalized groups have then very context-specific um, situations. But the way we, we definitely approach um, inclusive education is that we remind that it has to be about everybody. I think it's also important to consider the intersectionalities. So the more marginalized identities you might have, the more vulnerable and marginalized you will be. So in some countries it is, like when we think of education, it's the, the problem might be about girls getting access to education, staying there in some contexts is actually boys not achieving as well as girls. So all of these, um, these situations differ. And I think it's so important for education system to be sensitive for this and also be able to, to consider, you know, what are the short term and then longer term actions that they would need to need to be doing. However, I think learners with disabilities um, are a particular group of, again, heterogenic learners. Um, and what is important, I think, also to remember that, you know, there is that variety. And when we think of education system development, sometimes just giving a little bit longer time for exam or allowing uh, the learner to reply orally um, or using sign language or signs instead of just writing, for example, can make a huge difference. Um, I think this type of um, approach that we do have now when looking, for example, foundational learning that many of the um, stakeholders are really looking into right now. Um, you know, Education for All helped us with access. Of course, it's not totally all achieved yet. We still need to work on access as well, but really looking, you know, how can we ensure that the learners learn when they are at school? and that they get these essential skills to learn, right? So I think um, looking at, um, at also those children that might need just a little bit more time in learning to read, maybe they need just a little bit support, um, whether it's you know, getting, them, getting more time or also having a ruler to help that uh, the letters stay on, on the same uh, line once you, you have um, perhaps some issues with um, learning to read, if there is any reading reading disability or difficulty. This is the kind of um, message that we wanna also get, get um, across that, you know, I think in, in many countries still that the World Bank works with, there is a traditional understanding of learners with disabilities. And, um, and you know, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm using a traditional understanding, really referring to usually four groups of, of people that we would have, um, those who have difficulties in seeing or hearing, or you know, who have a physical disability. And before it was very much referred to having um, mental disabilities. Um, and, and then what does that mean? Um, and I think I'm happy to see that in the recent years that we have more 
information available. Um, it's important also to take care um, and, and um, look into uh, learners with intellectual disabilities. Um, many of the countries that we work with, it's still a big stigma. Parents would hide their children uh, with uh, any type of disability. So we need to work with the communities. We need to work with schools and traditional leaders, communities and, and governments uh, in order to to make this um, mind shift to be permanent one that every single child should have access to education and ideally to the nearby school. On working with those groups of people and in changing those mindsets, have you seen any successes that you'd like to share? Or have you learned any lessons perhaps? Yeah, I think um, the biggest lesson that it's always good to be reminded is that the mind shift doesn't happen overnight. And also the changes should be managed um, in such a way that they are not too quickly done. They shouldn't be too slow either, right? So I, I think I want to give an example of um, one of the countries that also received Inclusive Education Initiative Trust Fund funding, um, a bit um, a longer term uh, support was given to Rwanda as well as Ethiopia and Nepal. And let me give you an example of uh, Rwanda. Um, and of course, the colleagues who work in Rwanda uh, will be even more informative in sharing about um, the mind shift. Um, the country is a very good example of going for inclusive education policy and having that planned and then really making sure that there is a good roadmap on the way forward, how to implement the inclusive education policy. And I remember, you know, some of the activities in the beginning of the grant implementation in Rwanda didn't actually cost much, but they were very important. Um, so somebody could look, how come the resources are not quickly dispersed? I think in inclusive education, for example, you can quickly disperse, um, but then what are the results that you are, you are getting if you are not planning cautiously, depending on what the situation in the country is? So they took enough time to see where is the country at with the inclusive education policy. They also facilitated um, signing of the Marrakesh Treaty, which allowed for accessible um, education technology interventions to happen as well. But I would really like to, to congratulate Rwanda as a country and the teams who have worked in there that they have been really cautiously thinking um, from my perspective that what, how can the process be managed and what are the steps that need to be taken? And then also what are the gap areas that um, are, are needed to look into? And we've also had um, Inclusive Education Policy Academy um, carried out in Rwanda. That is one example of some of the activities that we are involved in here at the World Bank. We have group of education policy academies, and one of them is Inclusive Education Policy Academy. And with the country work in that, we very much go to the team, um, the World Bank team, and then the uh, country representatives in trying to find out where the country is at with inclusive education. We don't go with an approach like, this is a training that we have, um, please, are you interested? Take it or leave it. Rather, what is it that we can help you with? Um, we work with them. Um, different inclusive education professionals working in different parts of the world who then join into this effort. It, it has three different phases. And the first phase is virtual one. 
and we've uh, we've done this phase with Rwanda uh, last year. So we went to the to the colleagues and asked, you know, what are the areas that you'd like to be looking into? There was, uh, for example, identification of learners with disabilities. There was also inclusive leadership, uh, inclusive teacher education, and also um, we looked at inclusive EMIS. Um, and um, looking really at those uh, areas, then through the project work that the participants were able to, to get into, there has been some concrete changes. So I was very happy to see um, last week when a participant of the Rwanda Inclusive Education Policy Academy presented the, the project um, that she was working with, and that ended up actually getting funding. So there are some concrete steps that are currently being made now with guiding examinations in Rwanda. So it was very much looking at um, inequity in examination practices. And that Policy Academy was focusing on learners with disabilities. I think, again, this kind of twin track approach um, in relation to Policy Academies, any other thematic area that we have should have something about inclusive education. And is it teachers, is it education technology or another area? But then again, a focused approach and maybe looking at uh, particular marginalized groups in, in, you know, in more details is also important. But then at the same time, I think this, you know, the balance um, is important to, to step back and understand that, that we are really looking at everybody. And I think it's important to remember that when you do design an education system that is accommodating and really allowing access, participation, and achievement for learners with disabilities, then you are really designing the system that is good system for everybody. It is flexible enough. Um, it does also need to take those other marginalized um, groups and also some of the, the hidden issues, you know, that we don't see, um, you know, there is trauma that uh, learners have gone through. How can we get to a situation when we have, where we have sensitive teachers understanding the child or a young person or an adult coming to a learning situation. Maybe something happened before being in that space and, and, and learning environment. Um, maybe it's something that happened just before, or maybe it's something that happened earlier. Is the child um, hungry? Um, was there something else that's going on? I think there are interesting avenues also coming up in, in looking at that um, for example, my, my colleagues in early years are, have really looked at um, the effect of childcare and also looking at stress in families, how that affects on, um, on raising kids and, and, um, and really learning as well. But let me stop there. No, it's all too interesting. I, um, and it's, it's wonderful to hear success stories and, and such wide ranging ones as well. I wanted to finish on your thoughts about the future of education. What do you think needs to happen if we're going to provide equitable education, inclusive education to everybody? I think it's really important that this will be taken seriously by any decision makers um, in the governments of different countries, also by multilateral international organizations thinking of um, the influence of donors as well in the area of education development. It's important that we would be in a situation where we have a con common understanding that what kind of education systems um, are good for everybody? What kind of teacher education do we need 
and what kind of overall systemic change there needs to be that might be ongoing. So I think, you know, the the recent pandemic um, was really teaching us many lessons. We we were together with our children or relatives um, at home. Schools were closed in, in most of the countries, at least, a little, you know, for a little while. In some countries, even a year or more. And I think it was also very closely seen that what do the children and, and youth need when going to school? So it's, it is the academic part, but it's also that social emotional part. And I think hopefully this experience can be utilized that the approaches that might have been more within the approach of inclusive education are actually approaches that benefit each and every learner. Um, so the fact that we are speaking more about the importance of mental health, well-being, social-emotional um, elements in education, I, I think are really welcome. And those need to be at the center of it all when going forward. It is also important that in the current situation we are at in the world, that investing in education is not going to be forgotten. Because if the investments are going to be smaller, then the future generations are the ones who are going to suffer. So, of course, there is a lot of uh, competing priorities, thinking of health sector, thinking of really the financial crisis that we have. It is still very important to not to forget the important role of education and uh, really keep that as one of the, the, the priorities um, because it's really about the future. Well, Hannah Alasatari, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. It was lovely to be here. That was Hannah Alusitari. My thanks to her for joining me today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Goal 4. If you did, please do share it around. You can also subscribe. Listen to a new episode every Wednesday. I'll see you next week.